Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. We hope today's conversation will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. Um, really excited to be here. Um, it is uh, kind of a gloomy day out here in, uh, in Southern California. Um, I, I'm sure I have no reason to, to really be complaining after just the, the crazy weather that I know everyone's been experiencing. Um, the, the folks I work with in New Orleans have been pretty, pretty well snowed in these last few days. And uh, I know New York, where my folks are at, has been pretty pretty uh cold and and gloomy as well so um so yeah i i I guess it's not so bad um as always you know i'm to you guys who are new uh you guys who who've been return listeners know i'm a i'm an aba guy i'm a, a board certified behavior analyst uh i've been doing this for about 12 years and i i work at autism spectrum therapies um, an agency I just I've been actually now with for ten years here in, in Southern California, which is which is pretty exciting. Um, that I'm really proud of. Uh, we do ABA services across the country. Do a little speech, do a little OT, provide some overall support, um, and really uh, I've been doing this show now for getting close to me uh, about a year and a quarter, and and trying to create these types of communities, these types of resources. Um, you know, today's topic is one that I'm I'm really excited about, and, and I'm going to get to chat with a, a return guest uh, on a little bit of a different topic, talking a little bit about sleep. Um, but before we get there, I was I wanted to you know chat, think through some a conversation I just had a little earlier in the week. Um, you know, one of the things that's been popping up in the news lately is uh, is actually coming out in New York in a way. Uh, there's a a lot of conversation uh, about a new law coming out um, or being proposed. It's called Avante's Law, um, being proposed by uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, a New York State Senator. Um, and he has this law that's being discussed, uh, or this bill that's being discussed, I should say. Um, and it involves the idea of tracking devices for kids with autism. Um, and the intention is one of safety. And after this, this last summer, uh, where we saw a lot of kids get hurt and, and unfortunately a, a number of kids pass away um, due to wandering off, uh, some drownings, a, a lot of very scary things. Um, the motivation of this makes a lot of sense. Uh, the motivation of keeping kids safe and helping people, it, it, it seems like the right thing to do. And you know, one of the things that, that I kind of, thought immediately is I went to that, I don't know, I went to the old poli-sci undergrad history major, big brother is watching type of perspective that I got, you know, got at college where you read these books about government and you read these books about freedom and, and liberties and, you know, our forefathers and the Bill of Rights and, you know, you hear tracking and, and you get scared. And as I started to read a little bit more about this and as I started to talk to, uh, to my friend here, Christina, who is so important to this show, as we were talking through this idea, we were noticing and noting that parents really seem to, in many cases, like this idea and get behind this idea. Uh, not exclusively, not 100% of parents, but that there was, there was a group of parents um, and a number of voices that were really happy about this because... They wanted to keep their child safe. And it really kind of got me thinking about this idea of, you know, who really makes the decisions for us? Who really decides these laws for us? Um, is it me? I'm a professional. I don't have a child with autism. I, I've really worked to helping kids and helping families. But that's my perspective, not as that of a parent. Is it parents who are living every day? Um, helping take care of, helping raise, um, looking to really keep their kids safe? Is it people with autism themselves who have voices in our communities, who 
can speak to what they want, what they're looking for, what they would have wanted when they were a child? Um, is it people who are legislators? Is it people who are, um, you know, in Washington or in our, our state assemblies, you know, making these decisions? And it, it really became that, you know, who is it type of conundrum? You know, who really makes these decisions? And as we were talking this through, uh, I thought of Caroline Wilson. I, I thought about her in our conversation last week about just the way she described uh, the Autism Society of Los Angeles. Though She said, we're a small group, but we have a loud voice. And, you know, I, it really got me thinking about just that point. You know, her point about a parent with a loud voice can get a lot of things done. A group of parents who, who rally together to have a, a, a strong voice can get a lot of things done. And, you know, it's not an answer to this question, but it became kind of this this interesting possibility of, of how we can kind of shape society. Um, I am a poli-sci nerd in terms of, a, a, in addition to an ABA nerd, so this stuff is kind of interesting to me of, of how historically we've, we've shaped our society and how we shaped our our legislation and, and our and our politics and just the world around us. And, and it seems like in, as these topics, as autism becomes a bigger and bigger topic in the news, in government, in our society, it, it feels like we really do have a chance to have a voice. And I think we each and, and probably every single parent and person on the spectrum in particular has to really make a decision of, of whose voice do they want representing them. Just like any, you know, any citizen has to think, okay, who do I want representing me in government in these situations? You know, we have this opportunity, and it's, it's just not as clear-cut as, okay, well, I'm going to go to the ballot box and, and vote for someone, um, and they'll be my representative, and they'll be my senator, or they'll be my president. It's, it's a little bit more complicated in our community where we think about who, what groups do we want to support, who do, what groups do we want to be a part of, whose point of view do we want to um, get behind and and rally behind because there are a lot of points of views. I mean, this show is, has shown that to me every day. It seems like we have different points of views every time we have a new guest and, and that's exciting about what we do and exciting about community but can also be hard. So, uh, this law just kind of got me going in this completely other direction that I think that point of the voice and, and whose voice do we want out there is really what what I'm kind of more concerned about and thinking more about rather than this law itself right now. All right. Well, let's get to uh, let's get to the the meat of the show. Uh, today I am uh, going to be joined and, and, and we have... Uh, an old guest, an old friend, uh, V. Mark Durand. Um, he is known worldwide as an authority in the area of autism spectrum disorder. Uh, he's a professor of psychology at the University of Southern, Southern Florida in St. Petersburg. Uh, Dr. Durand is currently a member of the Professional Advisory Board for the Autism Society of America. He's also the co-editor of the Journal of Positive Behavior Interventions. He's written 11 books, including abnormal psychology textbooks, that are used at more than 1,000 universities worldwide. In addition, he has uh, more than 100 research publications, and I got lost in my ba my paragraph here. All right, I'm back. <laughs> he has more than 100 research publications, and some of the major themes in his research have included assessment, treatment of severe problem behaviors, and um, parent training, as well as treatment for uh, child sleep problems. Most recently, he developed an innovative approach for helping families work with their challenging uh, child, Optimistic Parenting, and published a multiple award-winning book for parents, Optimistic Parenting, Hope and Help for You and Your Challenging Child. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Rob. It's good to be back. Yeah, I was, it was funny. As I'm reading this last sentence about your book, I'm like, that's exactly what we talked about last time. <laughs> it was... Uh, <laughs> um, but I'm glad we're, we're kind of tackling a different subject. I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, to have you here to talk a little bit about uh, the research and the work you've done with sleep um, because I know from my own personal experiences, you know, I am, I'm a troubled sleeper myself. So I know like, 
truly what kind of impact a good night's sleep versus a bad night's sleep can have on me. But I can say my wife uh, responds very differently the next day, too, depending on was I tossing and turning, moving all over the house. So I think this is a, a good topic to cover on the show. Great. Um, you know, to kind of start us off, you know, what are some of the, the typical problems that um, people with autism have as it relates to sleep? Well, you know, what I usually tell parents is that um, people with autism, children or adults, uh, don't have different kinds of sleep problems. Mm-hmm. They're just more prevalent. So, you know, the problems going to bed at night, a uh, child who either um, cries or screams, um, won't go to bed, or someone who just can't fall asleep. Um, we have often have people with Asperger's-type uh, autism who will lie in bed and ruminate about the day. They'll be think, have lots of thoughts in the, going through their head, and they just can't fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Similarly, um, problems with night, night waking. So, again, mm-hmm. you get some, some people who get up and are, are upset and cry and scream, and others who just wake up and can't fall back to sleep. Um, and, and there are actually, uh, technically, there are some m- more than 80 uh, sleep disorders, um, many of which are very rare. But people with autism tend to have the same kind of sleep problems, but it's much more prevalent. And, and I actually got interested in this. I can tell you exactly when it was. It was July 1984 when my son was born. And he, had all, he didn't have autism, but he had all this, almost all the major sleep problems. So he wouldn't go to sleep at night. He'd wake up in the middle of the night. He'd wake up at 5 a.m. and stay up. He wouldn't nap. Um, he'd walk in his sleep, talk in his sleep. He had sleep terrors. And at that time, I was working with families who had kids with autism and other developmental disorders and just happened to ask, by the way, how does your child sleep? And it was astounding. Um, massive numbers of parents who never told anybody before would tell mm-hmm. these stories that my child's up all night, um, I sleep on the floor next to my son's bed because when he wakes wow. up, which he does every night, I don't want them to disturb the rest of the family. So it, we now know, I mean, back then we knew very little about sleep and autism, but we now know at least 80% of persons with autism will have significant sleep problems in their lives. Is, is there any sense as to why that's such a huge number? Yeah, there are, there are hints. Um, mm. we make, our brain makes a neural hormone called melatonin, and People mm-hmm. I know now can take melatonin, and sometimes it helps them sleep through the night. There's some some theories that um, in the brain of uh, brains of per- persons with autism that the serotonin system, which ultimately makes melatonin, um, is disrupted somehow. So if this melatonin isn't being produced as it should, mm-hmm. it may affect the internal clock of people with autism. So mm-hmm. it, it may be, and we... we you know, we, we know about this biological clock that we have in our head that says, you know, nighttime, go to sleep, daytime, wake up. Um, it varies in times. But if this melatonin system is disrupted, then your brain is not telling you to fall asleep. Um, and so this is where we think why a lot of parents will say, well, he can be up for two days. And it may be that this internal biological clock is, is disrupted. Um, and, and a lot of parents actually put their children on melatonin for that reason. And there's, mm. there's kind of varying responses to that. Wow. So with this being so common, um, there, you know, for, again, to, to make sure we're, we're kind of covering everything, there's got to be some pretty common results. You know, if, if 80% of kids on the spectrum are not sleeping uh, appropriately through the night, you know, what kind of impact is this showing on them and also maybe on their family dynamics? Yeah, that's a good question. That we know that um, lack of sleep, not getting enough sleep, and, and first of all, let me just, if there are parents out there listening right now, um, mm-hmm. it, we define a sleep problem not by how many hours someone sleeps. So there are people who can sleep seven hours um, and wake up refreshed. 
There are also people who can sleep for, or be in bed for 10 to 12 hours and be exhausted during the day. So in part, it's, it's, the sleep problem is defined by how it affects the individual. And, and in, you know, for most of us, not getting enough sleep for one night won't be terrible. You might be a little tired, you might be a little irritable, um, might be hard to focus, but your brain tends to catch up the next day and it's fine. But chronic sleep problems um, can really affect important things, and this is especially important in, in people with, who have you know, difficulty learning already. It affects learning and memory. So if you're not getting enough sleep, it's going to be harder for you to learn things during the day, to remember what you've learned during the day. So we know that's affected. We also know that um, your immune system is affected. Um, mm. you, you go through different stages of sleep, and you have dream sleep, and you have non-dream sleep. And we think that when you're in non-dream sleep, that your immune system basically rebuilds itself. It kind of repairs itself from all the you know, things that have happened to, to you during the day. If you're not getting enough sleep, your brain will do something really interesting. It'll catch up first on the dream sleep. For, for some reason, your brain says, huh. I have to catch up on the sleep, uh, you know, the dream sleep that I didn't get last night, um, but at the expense of non-dream sleep. So now you're at more risk for colds and flus and other types of diseases because your immune system now is not rebuilding itself. So the, there are a number of things that are affected. And in fact, we now know that hunger um, is affected by sleep. People who don't sleep well tend to gain weight. Uh, so there's lots of physiological um, effects of, of the lack of sleep. And the second part of your question, which mm. is the important one, which is about families, too. Yeah. Um, this is completely disruptive to many families. And I try to, when I teach professionals about this, I say, imagine, you know, you spent your whole day uh, with a child who, you know, challenges you at every moment, you know, is having a difficult time eating, has a difficult time getting dressed, getting them off to school. You're at multiple meetings with professionals about your child. You may, may go to the school. Your child comes home and problems at dinner time, and it's 10 o'clock at night, and you're just ready to, like, sit back and relax and go to sleep, and your kid's still up, or your kid's up and tantruming. And it's just debilitating if this happens night after night after night. And and I can relate because I had a son yeah. who was like that. Um, but I didn't have a child with autism. I had a child who, he had his own challenges, but, you know, it, it didn't didn't rise to the level of, of what we see in many of these families. And again, on a chronic basis, if you as a parent are not sleeping, this is going to make it harder for you the next day to rise to the occasion of dealing with my child, dealing with the school, dealing with you know all of the different laws that I have to um, address. So it's, it's, it severely impacts them. And um, oftentimes what we do is work with the child and then also work with the family to get them to go back to sleep on a regular schedule as well. So I'm curious about this, the, the, the working with part. You know, I, I, think mm -hmm. about, I think about ABA, and I think about how many times, you know, you go, you, I go and do a functional behavior assessment, and, and one of the first things I always say is, I don't want to just hear about what the problem is. I want to observe the problem. I want to see the environment. I want to see the behavior so then I can go and analyze these things. I think about sleep problems, and... I, my gut, right away, I'm thinking, okay, we have a child who maybe is waking up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep. It leads to all these different challenges. I kind of want to be in my own bed sleeping at 2 a.m. And do I want to <laughs> be here every day at 2 a.m.? And does this family really want me here every day at 2 a.m.? Like, how, how does that treatment side work? Well, there's a couple of things in what you said that are important. One is this and I'll, I'll talk about this disruption in families, but one is this functional behavioral assessment. Um, yeah. As you said, when you, you have a child who's, got, who's being aggressive, you want to see um, why this child is being aggressive versus another child. We know yeah. kids, two kids who are aggressive may be aggressive for very different reasons. And the same is true for sleep, and this is what we 
keep trying to uh, tell people that two kids who don't fall asleep at night may have two different problems or three different problems. And so the first thing we do is try to figure out the nature of this disrupted sleep for this child. So for one child, um, it may be that I haven't learned the habits of falling asleep on my own in Mm -hmm. my bed. So when I get put to bed at night, um, I can't fall asleep because my brain is basically saying I need my parents here with me. Somebody else may have uh, you know, this kind of uh, sleep schedule problem where my brain is saying it's not nighttime. My brain mm-hmm. is saying it's noon. And so their lack of falling asleep at night has to do with a, what's called a circadian rhythm. It's this uh, brain rhythm. So mm-hmm. we, we actually spend a fair amount of time trying to figure out you know, what type of sleep problem this is. And we, we, when we do research, we go into the home and we videotape bedtime routines, um, tantrums at night, things like that. Um, but when we do interventions, we don't really have to see it so much as um, get an idea of different patterns. And we have, uh, um, in my book, uh, Sleep Better, um, there's a sleep diary, so it gives me an idea. Uh, parents will say, well, he took a nap, at noon for two hours. His bedtime is this time. Um, He woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning and screaming. So we can get a a sense of how much is this child sleeping, what's the pattern of the child sleeping, and they'll do that for a couple of weeks. We also have an assessment in there that asks particular questions about the nature of sleep. Um, Do do things change? For example, um, is your child able to sleep in some environments but not others? Um, we look at also, um, you know, there are a number of things that affect sleep, for, for example, breathing problems. So if a child uh, snores loudly at night, they mm-hmm. may have obstructed breathing. And we had a case like this where we had a, a, a young woman who they could, her mother couldn't get her out of bed uh, no matter how, how hard she tried. She was always exhausted. And I finally said to her, you know, does your daughter have allergies? And she said, yes. I said, because what you told me was this, is, this occurs periodically in certain seasons, and it hit me that when she's having allergy problems, she's having mm. breathing problems. When she's having breathing problems, what's happening at night is she's waking up many times at night, probably not even aware that she's waking up, falling back to sleep, and that doesn't give her this kind of deep, restful sleep that we need. So even mm. though she's, in quotes, asleep for eight, nine, ten hours, She's not really getting that deep sleep she needs. So what the treatment was for her, you know, for this inability to wake up in the morning and being tired, and she actually was then aggressive during the day, was to try to address the allergies which interrupted her breathing. So there are, there are a number of different things we look for in this basically functional analysis of why does this child have these kinds of sleep problems. Um, the other interesting thing that's happening now, though, is it, it, as you said, it you know, parents don't want to be up in the middle of the night, or I don't want to be up in the middle of the night in their home, kind of trying to see what's happening. And yeah. fortunately, there are devices now that can do that for you. Um, I I know of uh, apps for um, the uh, iPhone that you can basically slip under the sheet under your child's pillow, um, and it will monitor movements in bed. And wow. so even if you didn't know they were waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning, the next day you can look at your phone and go, holy cow, he was up for two hours moving around. Um, there, there are also, um, I'm actually wearing one now, a Fitbit, which is a wrist um, monitor that looks at how many steps I take during the day. Yeah. But, you can, but you can also set it up to monitor movements at night. And so you don't even have to attach it to a computer. You just, on an app on your iPhone, can see, holy cow, you know, they, he was up, um, and, and not even have to get out of bed, but just not getting restful sleep, and then woke up at this time, went to, seemed to fall asleep at, at this time. And, and actually now I'm working with a group at Stanford, um, this really kind of interesting group, who are um, both medical doctors and, and engineers, Mm-hmm. And we're working on one of these, well, they're doing it, but I'm advising them, on one of these devices that not only will monitor sleep, again, kind of a, just a wristwatch-like 
device, but also do one of the interventions that we do, which is called um, scheduled awakenings, where you, I can describe it later, but where you actually want to wake up your child uh, um, sometime before they normally have a night waking or, or a sleep, other kind of sleep problem. And they're kind of building this to do it so the parent doesn't have to do it at all. They could monitor their child's sleep. They could make it go off so the child gets a vibration and kind of lightly awakens them. So this is, we're at a really good time. 30 years ago when I started this, obviously we, we had none of this. Yeah. Uh, but we, we d- don't really have to go into your home now to get an idea of what's, what's happening at bedtime or at least what, when the bedtime is. Um, and, and get some of that information. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned the Fitbit because I've actually seen uh, a friend of mine has it and showed me his sleep patterns across like the span of a week. And he was really into this. Uh, and it, w- it was very easy to read. And I, and I just saw them at Best Buy. I think they're like right now going for like 80 bucks, which compared right. to, I'm assuming, what technology would have cost 30 years ago, I mean, I've, I've seen, like, the old-school sleep labs where you, you know, it's the, the whole setup, and they had those at my, at my college, actually, where, where you would come in there and, and do those types of studies. It's, it's a completely different, uh, I guess, ball game of how you can analyze this stuff with technology. Right, and they, they used to have, and they still do, uh, what's called actographs, which are, uh-huh. are also wristwatch, um, but those were expensive and big, and the mm-hmm. Fitbit Flex, this is the one that goes around your wrist, um, right. is smaller than a wristwatch. And we, <clears throat> we've also we've used actographs in our research sometimes. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> sometimes some kids with autism will not tolerate putting that on their wrists. So in, in the case of the, the Fitbit itself, the original one, it's just this kind of quarter-size thing that you can put in a pocket. You could you know, somehow put it near them and get the same kind of information. So, nice. yeah, we're at a time where it's much easier to, to, to monitor these things and see what's going on. That's awesome. Well, uh, we're at the, the midway point, so why don't, we, uh, why don't we take a short break, play a couple commercials, catch our breaths, and we'll be back with, uh, with Dr. Durand. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team, with one mission, to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host or today's guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's more info at AutismTherapies.com. Now, back to the program. All right. Commercials are over. Back to the show. Um, So going back to the topic of sleep, um, you know, as I was listening to everything you were talking about before, you you were talking about the treatments and you were talking about the technology and and how we um, we don't need to necessarily be there as much, and, and more and more of the treatment we do during the day can kind of be, or I guess the treatment can occur more and more during the day. And it got me thinking about a couple of things. You know, how much how much does physical activity 
play a role in either the cause or, or the treatment for sleep. Um, because I know, like me, if I go to the gym, I am like a different person, especially when it's time to go to sleep, um, when I'm on a good workout, exercise routine and schedule. And I know so many of our kids don't have as much physical activity compared to neurotypical peers. Right, and, and this, it's actually a very interesting uh, phenomenon. We don't know everything about exercise mm-hmm. and sleep, but one of the things we do know is that exercise, you know, vigorous cardiovascular exercise, increases your internal body temperature. You, you get warmer. Mm-hmm. And this is essential um, in understanding sleep. When you, if you look at your temperature um, during the day, it doesn't actually stay at the same temperature. It starts to, it starts to warm up early in the morning, um, and it coincides with becoming more alert. So your internal body temperature is warming up, you're becoming more alert, and you wake up. Your internal body temperature then kind of starts to level out, and then around 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, depending on the person, your internal body temperature dips. You, you get uh-huh. cooler, and that's around the time when people say, I hit the wall, <laughs> I'm tired, mm-hmm. I need some caffeine, and what's happening is as your t- body temperature cools, you become tired, and mm-hmm. fortunately for us, it starts to go back up again um, into the early evening, and then later in the evening starts to go down, making you drowsy and fall asleep. What happens in a lot of families, and I, you know, I had this one story, this mom who told me, Oh, you know, before his bedtime, I try to roughhouse with him. I try to run around the house with him. And we, what I'm trying to do is really tucker him out so that he'll, he'll just go to sleep. And I'm tired, and he's just now bouncing off the walls. Why is that? I said, well, the reason is, is his internal body temperature is increased. So he's more alert. Um, exercising at the wrong time will mm. actually interfere with sleep. Exercising at the right time will help. So, for example, if you go to the gym in the late afternoon, you're going to increase your temperature. And then later on in the evening, it's not only going to dip, but it's going to dip more dramatically because it's been raised. And that's what helps you to sleep. It's this change in temperature. So if it changes dramatically downward, you're, you're really tired and you, and you start to fall asleep. People who have insomnia, who report really not sleeping that much, tend not to have um, extreme changes in body temperature. So we think this change in body temperature is really what's affecting for some people whether they're drowsy at night or, or not. And so I, that's one aspect. I, I'm, you know, there, are, there are also you know, hormonal aspects of exercise as well that may, interfere, may um, facilitate or interfere with sleep, but we do know that the body temperature does affect it. So that's why we, we will tell parents don't exercise, don't roughhouse, you know, in a couple of hours before bedtime, but do it earlier. Um, really, you really want to have them not only for their physical health, but you want to raise that temperature so that later in the evening, it'll help them become drowsy. Yeah, just you know, it, I I keep going back to the a presentation I went to years ago between a physical, um, not a you know a trainer, basically a guy, a guy who was a, a trainer at a gym and a behavior analyst, and they did this presentation of this program they did working on physical fitness um, with a teenage girl, and they were talking about all of these other things that took place. You know, by putting this program to place, these are all these other things that also improved in her life. She, you know, she lost a certain amount of weight. Uh, She got onto a healthier diet, her sleep cycle, and it just gets me thinking of how much you know, how sometimes we, we probably take for granted just the exercise piece of, of these things as it relates to our kids, and especially issues like sleep. Well, and it, it, we do know that um, depression, for example, um, can be helped with, with regular exercise. And huh. this is an, another kind of fa- fascinating thing about, um, about sleep and, and depression, um, mm-hmm. that they, the the you know, the neurons in your brain that are involved in depression and sleep overlap at places. And we, we think, and we know, uh, you were talking earlier about how it's a dreary day. If, you're, mm-hmm. if you don't get enough sunlight, um, 
that affects the melatonin production in your brain. And there is some overlap, so that will mm. interfere with your sleep if you're not getting light. And it will also interfere with uh, or create depression. And we, we, you know, we call it winter blues um, mm -hmm. or seasonal affective disorder. But those things are related, and, and I think that's why people, you know, exercise is such a, an important thing because it can impact on a number of different systems, um, including depression, anxiety, and sleep. Hmm. Looking more and more at the, the treatment side of things and some other variables, um, you know, we were talking about the family and we were talking about parents. And, you know, as we were kind of in the beginning of these questions of treatment, I started wondering, have you seen differences or are there extra factors to consider as it relates to maybe a sibling? Um, there's the parent-child. My child wakes up every night or my child is not getting the appropriate sleep. Um, but so many kids have siblings. You know, so many of our kids are not only children. Is there anything to consider as it relates to maybe their neurotypical siblings? Well, you, you know, the, the line I always give is that we designed the sleep pr program in part for the child's sleep problem and in part to fit the family. Mm -hmm. um, and actually one of the nicest things parent ever said about my book was, you're not trying to sell any one technique here. If you, if you look at sleep books, and there are many of them out there, they usually mm -hmm. have one technique that they, they try to sell. And the, the way I recommend is you, you basically build it around the family. So there are cases, for example, if a child wakes up at 1 o'clock in the morning crying and screaming, and that wakes up their sibling who sleeps in the bed next to them, that's a problem. And, and, and now you've affected the, the, you know, the rest of the family. What we're trying to do in those cases is design a plan that we, I would call errorless. So mm -hmm. can I, and I mentioned this one intervention, this is called scheduled awakening. So I can go in, briefly awaken my child, not that they wake up and say anything or do anything, and have them fall back to sleep. There's no crying, there's no screaming, it doesn't affect the sibling. Um, and so that can actually prevent night wakings, and then we kind of fade those back so that you don't have to do it every yeah. night. E each of the treatments that we recommend has an upside and a downside. And so what we do with families is go through um, with them what, it, what are your strengths and weaknesses? You know, what, what is it that you're willing to do? And we have some parents who say, look, I have a two-week vacation. I'll do anything. I'll stay up all night if I need to. I'll do anything to get my child to sleep. And we have other families that are, you know, more complicated with siblings and saying, I can't tolerate my child tantruming in the middle of the night or tantruming at bedtime, so I make them come in and sleep in my bed, and that reduces it. So I need something that um, where there'll be no crying and screaming. So we design different interventions for those problems, uh, based on, on on the family's needs, we had mm -hmm. one mom who liked to take her her son to um, church on Sundays, and it was a two-hour service, and he would fall asleep in church, which is okay, except that now he wasn't sleeping at night because he had slept during the day, and so we designed this sounds terrible, but we said give him caffeine, um, help him stay up. You know, keep him occupied, but have him stay up because you want to take him out in public. You want him to be there with you. Um, give him some cola that has caffeine mm -hmm. in it. It'll help him stay awake, and that way you won't have the nighttime problem where he's up now all Sunday night, and mm -hmm. Monday morning when you're trying to get him ready for school, he's tired and exhausted. And so we kind of play around with different aspects, and, and, and you're mentioning the sibling as well. That's, that's part of it. The other part of it is a lot of sleep problems can also be genetic. Um, so mm -hmm. you can have families, um, and this is, I like to joke that my son's sleep problems <laughs> came from my wife, and because she's a light sleeper, he was a light uh -huh. sleeper, and um, these things tend to run in families. So you sometimes you know, have to run parallel programs for uh, siblings when you're, when you're working with, with families. So it's 
It's, it's yeah. complex, but can be sorted out. Okay. Um, you know, the, the, the question I want to go to next, which I purposely waited to, to get towards the end, is uh, in relation to medication. You know, you talked a little bit about it briefly with just referencing melatonin before. Um, and it's the first thing I think of, and I think most people think of when it relates to sleep. It's, you know, I, I, so many people know, oh, I can't sleep, so I took a sleeping pill. Um, and I have to assume that that's not really the way to go for our kids. Am I, am I wrong with that assumption, or is, is that more of an appropriate way to look at it? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, there, there are no sleep medicine professionals who recommend medication for ch- children's sleep in general, not just children with autism, but in general. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, for adults, they recommend if you take sleep medication that you don't take them for any longer than two to four weeks. So mm-hmm. it's seen as a temporary fix. Um, now, having said that, most of the kids that we've seen in, with autism and also without autism that have had significant sleep problems, their pediatricians have told them, the parents, have them, give them Benadryl at night. Benadryl mm. is an antihistamine. It makes you drowsy, mm-hmm. um, and that'll help them sleep. And it will. The problem is you can't stop giving it. <laughs> if you mm. stop giving it, you, you get what's called rebound insomnia your insomnia, your sleep problems come back worse. Wow. Because what happens in your brain, your brain starts to get used to this. It gets used to having this medication, this uh, medicine, this drug in your brain. It adapts to it. It gets used to it. And now when you stop it, boom, it comes back. And your brain's going, wait a minute, you know, where's, where's that help I had to get to sleep? And this then in turn frightens parents because the child now is up all night, maybe, um, and they put them back on the medication. And this is, this is one of the problems, is you, you start to adapt to it. You don't want to give Benadryl to a child every night for 15 years um, if, you, if you don't have to. Um, and, and so that's the role of medication. Melatonin is a little different, and mm-hmm. now they're actually making sleep medications that mimic melatonin. Uh-huh. And this... The, the data on, on those new drugs are, are not clear yet as far as what's, what's the effect of long-term use. But bottom line is most parents don't want to have to give a medication to their child permanently. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why we, we tend to, when we have uh, kids on Benadryl or they're taking something else, we have them uh, stay on it until we can start to help them with the plan and then start to wean them off carefully with the, with the advice of their pediatrician. Um, and we've been pretty successful in doing that. Nice. Looking, kind of taking a, a summary kind of look at, at all these different things we've talked about, you know, I, I'm sure if there's a parent out there listening, you know, you've kind of mentioned a couple of pitfalls, uh, some, some common kind of traps or mistakes that parents maybe make. You mentioned the um, maybe roughhousing right before bed when really it should be earlier. Maybe it's um, this, this issue with, with Benadryl and maybe not really using medication the right way. Are there other common mistakes or maybe traps that parents maybe walk into as they're, trying to help their child sleep? Well, um, the, the first thing we do uh, is assess what we call sleep hygiene. And, and basically mm-hmm. those are just behaviors, things that you do during the day that's going to affect your sleep. And the number, the number one and number two thing we check for is, do you have a bedtime routine? Mm-hmm. And do you have a regular time that your child goes to bed and wakes up in the morning? We've, we found when we've had... Uh, families come in with sleep problems that a significant number of them can actually improve sleep just by adding those two things. And, it, it, you know, huh. it's shocking to me sometimes, but I'll ask a parent, um, do you have a bedtime routine? And they kind of get embarrassed and go, well, you know, all of a sudden I look at my watch and I go, oh, my goodness, it's 1030. Go to bed. <laughs> and <laughs> that's not a bedtime routine. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that's going to be a problem. And so what we recommend is, for about 30 minutes before a regular bedtime is you do calming activities. 
could include brushing your teeth and washing up, uh, changing into pajamas, uh, reading a story. Uh, some uh, families like to pray with their child. Whatever it is, it's, it's, it's this calming routine that basically sends a message to your brain, bedtime's coming, bedtime's coming, bedtime's coming. And that actually can help significantly. The only exception to that is for kids or adults with autism that are prone to rituals. And we, we have to be very careful that we don't introduce now a new ritual that if it has to be changed, they get upset. So mm-hmm. we say to, to those, those families, you know, do a routine, but vary it up. So you may not brush your teeth first. You might kind of get put, go in pajamas first. So you may read first and then get cleaned up. Vary mm-hmm. it so they don't get upset. Because we have families, we had one uh, little girl that ended up with a two-hour bedtime routine because her parents wow. just, you know, kept adding things and she, you know, would get upset, so they'd add more things. Um, this, 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 you know, was funny if not sad, but they had a rocking chair in, in her room and they, they not rock with her, but had it rocking in there because one time she fell asleep while they were rocking in a chair, so they added that. Another time um, they found that the father was on an um, exercise bike and she fell asleep next to that, so they added that. So you know this as superstitious reinforcement. They kept doing things yeah. that, seemed to work, that seemed to work, and so the parents got reinforced. Okay, well, put the exercise bike in the room, and, and they put the rocking chair in the room, and it ended up being two hours oh, of these routines um, that we had to help them, help them with. So those two things, and, and the, the issue about Bedtime and, and morning waking is important mm-hmm. because um, parents will often say on a Friday night, well, he doesn't have to go to school tomorrow. She doesn't have to go to school tomorrow. It's not a big deal. So he can stay up later. And that's fine. And then they'll get tired and fall asleep. And the next morning, if you're lucky, they'll sleep in a little bit, and that's fine. And Saturday night, they're not tired, but we don't have to get up too early Sunday morning. And then Sunday night, this kid now has his clock is off, and it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and they can't sleep. Mm-hmm. And now the parents panic because Monday morning we have to get up at 7 for school. And so what we tell them, and this is where we negotiate, don't let them stay up too late. Don't let them sleep in too much. Now, if you want to let them do it a little bit, that's fine. But don't, you know, if they're a teenager and they're sleeping in bed till noon, as nice as that is for you, <laughs> because you have some <laughs> free time, it's going to, negatively impact their sleep. So instead of waking them up at 7, wake them up at 8.30. And, and that's how we, we kind of negotiate these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are two important ones. Um, obviously, you know, we look at things like caffeine intake, and, and people differ on caffeine intake, but we say up to about six hours. I know for myself, if I drink a Diet Pepsi at 5 o'clock you know, in the evening, I, my sleep's affected that night. Other mm-hmm. people could drink a cup of caffeinated coffee and still fall asleep. Um, we look at things um, like, in fact, if you drink milk before bedtime, that actually helps. Um, there's, mm. there's L-tryptophan in milk, and, and it can help sleep. We talked about exercise. Um, one of the other things that we do is, um, again, as a behavior analyst, you would recognize stimulus control. Mm-hmm. Don't do things in bed that will interfere with sleep. So don't play in bed. Um, only do things in bed that signal sleep. Because if you play in bed, that bed is going to become a signal for playing. And it's very hard to kind of turn that off. So there are a number of things um, that we ask parents to kind of take a look at to um, help them with their sleep. And and a significant portion of them can really um, see improvements with these just daily changes. You know, it's, it, listening to these ideas, like I hear, uh, that, that was the thought I had, it's like SD, 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 like <laughs> discriminative stimulus all throughout this. And I, you know, I was able to relate it to my own sleep patterns because I actually had insomnia. I was, there was about six months of my life where I was probably sleeping like one to two hours a night. And it was, it was horrible. And so much of what you described, I felt and and now I think about how I sleep, and it's I have a very rigid nighttime routine that I've figured out adaptations. So if I'm in a hotel, I can still do my nighttime routine. If I'm at my in-laws' house, I can still do my nighttime routine because it's something that is 
adaptable to a variety of places, but I can tell you exactly what the SD is for me to say, and now it's time to sleep. And when I wake right. up in the middle of the night, I almost, redo, I almost have to redo the routine or a couple of steps of it, and I get that same thing all over again. So it's so much of what you I, – I, I like it because it, it reminds me of just – it's not just about kids with autism. As you said at the beginning, these are common sleep problems for people. Our kids just happen to have autism, so we need to just analyze it and address it a little differently. Right. And, and you know, the, what, one of the things you said that kind of triggered in my head, another thing we, we remind mm-hmm. people to do is if you wake up in the middle of the night or if you're in bed and can't fall asleep, if it's more than 15 to 20 minutes, get out of bed. Um, do not oh, yeah? stay in bed awake for a long period of time, again, because it becomes this SD, it becomes this signal for being anxious. Um, another thing we tell adults, and I tell this to my wife all the time, she doesn't listen to me, but um, I tell her, don't look at the clock. If you wake up in the middle of the night, do not look at what time it is. Because mm. you're going to sit there and say, it's 3 o'clock. Oh, no, if I don't fall asleep for another couple of hours, I'm, I won't have enough sleep. It's like, don't worry about it. Your brain right. will take over. You know, okay. don't, don't sit there and calculate hours. Um, so there are a number of these tricks that you can you can use to help help you fall back to sleep. That's really cool. Yeah, I I, I appreciate that. I'm gonna actually uh, I do stay in bed and I do wake up in the middle of the night for like an hour two hours at the time. So I feel like I've got some uh, some different things to to do for myself. Um, hmm. You know, one other thought I had, and, and again, this is just kind of like a random question from my own life is, you know, I, my nephew, my um, my uh, my sister-in-law has got him using this really great uh, alarm clock. It's a combination visual and um, and, and auditory. So he he not only can see, you know, he can kind of see when he should get up. Um, so sometimes he wakes up a little bit early. He maybe wakes up a little bit earlier than they want. Um, it's a visual representation of like when, okay, it's 6.30, maybe you shouldn't get out of bed till 7. Are, are things like that helpful for our kids when it looks like, when it comes to the, the waking part of all of this, where, you know, if they're waking up a little bit earlier than they should, you would want them maybe to stay in bed or stay in the room and not necessarily kind of interrupt everything else? Does, is that at all helpful? Well, it's complicated. Um, you know, a, a great developmental pediatrician once said to me bedtimes are for parents <laughs> you know and it basically it means we're done now we, we need to rest and so we've had kids who their parents wanted them to go to bed a little earlier than their brain said they should go to bed so what we've said is okay you, you can have them in the room not in bed but on the floor or on a chair have them do some quiet things alone so that you get some alone time and they can kind of be up, calming down, and then, as you said, some kind of signal for when it's bedtime. And the same thing yeah. is true in the morning. You know, so can I learn that if I wake up and this light is not or whatever, that I can get up and do something quiet in my room, and then when the light comes on, then it's time to get up and, and start your day. So those, um, lots of kids can learn those, those cues. Um, there are also, and I mentioned the I. Uh, phone app. They also have now um, the ability to signal you when it's a good time to wake up. So it'll it'll look at when you're starting to um, become aroused, starting to wake up at, at times, and then start to slowly wake you up. And that waking up at the right time um, makes you more alert and less groggy and less unhappy. Uh, kind of being awakened at the wrong time with a loud alarm and if you're in deep sleep, you're going to have trouble getting up out of bed. So there's, there's mm. lots of aspects of the timing of sleep that's important as well. Got it. Well, we are, we're at that time. Um, you, you've mentioned this book a few times throughout the show. I want to make sure everyone gets the full name. Um, the, this great book on sleep that, that you put out there is called Sleep Better, A Guide to Improving Sleep for Children with Special Needs. And you guys just put out a new revised edition, if I'm not mistaken. We did. I, you know, it, it, the original book I wrote 
and published about 15 years ago. There's a lot of new information now that we have. And I also incorporated some of the optimistic parenting work that we have done subsequently. So if parents have a difficult time implementing some of these things, there's also some help in there, in there for them. You know, how can I, if I get upset when I hear my child cry, how can I help myself through that situation? So it's, it's uh, completely revised um, and um, feel pretty good about it. I'm, I'm glad it's out there and it's helped, helped lots, of, lots of people. So I'm glad you mentioned the optimistic parenting because that's the one question I forgot to ask you is how do these two things go together? So I'm glad our listeners can uh, pick up the book and, and actually answer that question themselves. Yeah, there are actually two new chapters. One that you know is a brief assessment for the parent: how do uh-huh. you respond to certain situations? And then, um, and then, if you do have these problems, then there's a, a simplified guide to kind of how do you think about things and um, what, what are better ways to look at situations that will help you through these tantrums and, and difficulties that they're having. Fabulous. Yeah, it's. I mean, just going through it and being able to uh, to read some of this, it's. Uh, I think I agree with that parent. You definitely don't have one approach. It's you're taking that holistic. Let's look at this situation, not try and you know fit this kid into our approach. So it's. I think it's it's just a great guide for parents out there. Well, thank you. I appreciate um, it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I know I said to you off the air, but you know I just love the way you describe things. I feel like. This is not something I know a ton about, but listening to you, you you just explain these concepts in a way that I just find so easy to digest and comprehend, and I feel so much more equipped to be able to kind of look at my own sleep, look at, you know, look at clients' sleep, and to actually be a resource and not just a, let me give you resources solely. So so thank you so much. I I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. My my wife um, jokes that I have a simple mind, so it m- makes it easier for me to be able to explain things. <laughs> it sounds like uh, your wife has a great sense of humor, so that's that's awesome. Yeah, um, yes, she does. Great. Well, I'm sure we'll be uh, calling you again to come back on the air uh, in the near future. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Rob. All right. Uh, we are at the wow. We literally have about two minutes to go, um, but I, I definitely, as I was saying, you know, anyone out there who's who who is dealing with sleep problems with their child, um, you know, so much of this stuff that we're talking about really, you know, it really does make sense, and I do really recommend this book. And and I think, you know, Mark's perspective on this and the way he's analyzing these things, especially incorporating these new technologies, just. I don't know. It really makes a lot of sense to me. And for for professionals out there, I think this is also something to to look into. You know, I, I definitely don't feel like I'm a I'm a sleep expert now, but if 80% of our kids have these types of issues, then it's it's something that I know I want to be a better resource and understander of to be able to just be a guide and be a support. And so other BCBAs out there, I, I recommend this because I think it it really does make a difference. Um, I just got the 90-second warning in my head. So um, if, you, uh, if you have questions, if you have comments, please give us a call. Drop us a line. Um, I've, so many of your comments actually uh, are what kind of got me talking about uh, this bill, Avante's Law. So um, I really appreciate them and, and love to kind of hear what's important to you guys. Uh, if you want to do so, you can uh, email us at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. You can um, paste uh, some stuff onto our wall on Facebook. And also, uh, I forgot to mention at the top, if you do have some concerns about dealing with safety or or how to teach your child safety skills, um, I'd recommend checking out the autismtherapies.com, our website. Um, We do have some good resources up there as well as some references to some other good resource manuals and guides that have been put out um, because obviously this is a really important topic. So I hope you guys have a fabulous week, have a fabulous weekend, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.autismtherapies.com. 
Please join us each week for a new episode or visit our archives to listen to and download previous shows. Sorry, I think you...